continuing our study through the book of Matthew. We uh, are in the closing chapters now, so for those of you who are wondering, would he ever finish Matthew? Yes, the day is coming. Maybe next year sometime, but it'll be here. <laughs> we'll get there. But turn over to the, the Gospel of Matthew, and we find the Lord here in the week of his passion, the week in which he was crucified, uh, the final earthly week of our Lord's life and ministry, and this Friday he will die. He will give his life. But in our context today, we're looking at verses 12 to 17. Last week, remember, we looked at the triumphal entry into Jerusalem And most people think that happened on a Sunday. It didn't. It happened on a Monday. And uh, he entered the city to the cries of the people, Hosanna, son of David, blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord, Hosanna in the highest. And tens of thousands, millions of people really, hailed him as King, Messiah, the Deliverer, the Savior. And it was a wonderful day because he was receiving the praise that was due his name. And this procession that proceeded on Monday began just outside the eastern gate as Jesus came from Bethany where he was staying with some friends and a large group of people had already gathered with him and they were following him and then another large mass of people actually came out of the walls of the city to meet him and the procession began and it went through the gate into the city and you could imagine these hosannas ringing out through the air And in Mark chapter 11, verse 11, it tells us that Jesus came to the temple. And that's where the procession on that Monday ended. It ended at the temple. And he looked around and it says that he went back to Bethany to spend the night with Mary and Martha and Lazarus and the twelve disciples. And our text this morning in verse 12, it's actually Tuesday morning. Another day has risen, and our Lord is one day closer to Calvary. And on Tuesday, we're going to notice that he goes right back to the same place he left Monday night. He goes right back to the temple. And in verses 12 to 17, we find out what happened there. So you can follow along as I read our text for us. Verses 12 to 17 from Matthew chapter 21. And Jesus entered the temple of God, and drove all who sold and bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables and the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he said to them, It is written, My house shall be called the house of prayer, but you made it a den of robbers. And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. And when the chief priests... And the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did, and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David. They were indignant. And they said to him, Do you hear what these are saying? And Jesus said to them, Yes. Have you never read out of the mouth of infants and nursing babes? You have prepared praise. And leaving them, he went out of the city to Bethany, and lodge there. Now, I just want to give you a little background on the setting of what is actually happening here before we actually jump into the text. Remember, this is the time of Passover. It's Passover week. And it's just overflowing with people. It's kind of like, you know, going down to uh, San Francisco on, on Fleet Week or one of those weekends where they have all the stuff going on and the the freeways are packed and the no parking it's just packed with people that's what you have to kind of envision here and uh, the population of jerusalem has probably grown three to five times its normal population i remember when we lived down in the desert in the winter time they'd have a golf thing called the bob hope golf tournament or whatever, and they had it out there at uh, 
uh, Bighorn and a couple other places there in the valley. And whenever that would happen, the valley would just swell up to capacity with people. I mean, in a matter of days, you'd, be, you'd have to wait for people at red lights and all this stuff. Other than that, it was pretty empty. But that one weekend, I just remember everything. The restaurants were full. Everything was full. And pretty much if you lived there, you just wanted to stay home and stay out of the mess. Well, that's kind of what was going on here in Jerusalem. It was just full of people. And the Passover tradition said that in order to celebrate the Passover, you had to be inside the city limits. You couldn't go out in the wilderness and do it. You had to be there in Jerusalem where the temple was. And so what they would do is this time of year, because there were so many people they couldn't literally fit in the city, they would pass, the governing authorities would pass a special edict and they would actually expand the borders of Jerusalem. And the borders would actually be expanded out and to kind of encompass even some of these smaller little villages and towns around there. And so you had people not only jam-packed into Jerusalem, but you had them overflowing in places like Bethany and, and Bethphage and other areas there because they just couldn't hold everybody. It was at capacity. And some of the people would rent a room from people. They would rent their houses out. They, they needed a place to stay because you had to stay there if you were going to do the Passover. And all these places were just filled up. And some of them, they stayed with friends out in these local communities. And that's what Jesus told chose to do. He went there on Monday, then he turned around and he went right back to Bethany where he was staying with his friends, the home of Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. And the 12 disciples and him stayed outside in that town of uh, Bethany there. But the temple was one of those places that just attracted people. It just attracted people this time of the year because that's where all the focus was. That's the place that was the most crowded And even though the Jewish law really, they had a law that said you couldn't sleep in the temple. It was against the law. You couldn't do it. And so what people would do is they'd set up tents all around the perimeter. And it's almost like, you know, around Christmas time when you know some of these stores are having special sales and you see some of these crazy people out there and they got tents, you know, days in advance and they're lining up and they create a little tent city there before the store opens, you know, so they can get a free TV or some crazy thing. You know, that's, that, envision that. That's kind of what's going on here. There's people just scattered everywhere. And all around the temple area there, the outer court, there'd be pilgrims and tents and fires to keep warm at night. So it's just, you have all these, these people. And it's just alive with all these folks desiring to be there for the, the Passover. Now the temple was the center of a lot of stuff. It was for ceremonial cleansing and purification rites. And they took care of a lot of business in the, the temple. So it's kind of obvious that that would be the center point of where Jesus would go. But this morning I want us to look at, as we go through this text... I want us to look at what Christ does. He goes directly to the temple and he goes there for the express reason of showing people his divine uh, credentials, you might say, his messianic credentials. He wants them once again to see that he is who he's claiming to be. Remember, the Gospel of Matthew is made up of, of Christ over and over and over again claiming to be the Messiah, the chosen one of God. And so he makes a statement here in this environment that you would have to be blind to miss. Remember, whenever Jesus allowed his supernatural abilities to be seen, whenever Jesus was in the process of doing miracles or performing works of wonders, things like that, healing people and the blind and the lame and feeding people from a couple fish, all those things. After each miracle, the people, they looked at Jesus, they said, you're the guy. We want you to be our king. You're the man. And they would try to force him to be their king. And their reason was, is they wanted Jesus to go to Jerusalem and overthrow Rome. Because remember, the Jews were under the yoke of Rome. They were were enslaved to the Roman government. And so here Jesus comes along, and he's got all these people following him, he's got all these supernatural abilities, and most of the people who were following him were saying, yeah, he's the guy that's going to deliver us. Politically, 
socially, economically, militarily from the Roman government. And all through his ministry, we see claims of they, that's what they wanted to do. They actually tried to force him one time to be their king. And whenever they tried to make him king, at this point, he resisted. And on Monday, as we saw last week, he came into Jerusalem. Speaks a great deal about the humility of Christ. He rode into the city on what would be his coronation on the fowl of a donkey. Sitting on what was basically one of the the disciples' used robes. And the people were throwing old clothes in front of him and palm branches as he came into the city. He didn't have any weapons. He definitely didn't have an army. He had an army of people, but he didn't have a literal army with him. His entourage was basically a group of nobodies, a bunch of fishermen. And see, you don't see any glory, you don't see any pomp, you don't see any earthly majesty when Christ the humble king came into Jerusalem. But see, still in their hearts, the people were looking at this deal and they thought, you know what? We know what he's going to do. He's going to wait till he gets to Jerusalem and then, and then it's going to happen. Then he's going to overthrow Rome. That was still deep in their hearts, in their thinking. They wanted to be free of that oppression. And they thought Christ was the man to do it. Well, we see here, First of all, he was on a divine mission. Look at verse 12, a divine mission. It says that Jesus entered, my version, the ESV says the temple. Most of you probably have a little note there. Some versions say the temple of God. I kind of like that a little better. But we know what temple it was. It was the temple of God. Some manuscripts eliminate that. But either way, we know what temple it was. It was the temple of God. He went right to God's temple. Now think about it. If he was on a military excursion and he wanted to overthrow the Roman government, he probably would have went to Fort Antonius, which is basically where they house all the Roman soldiers. He would have said, come on, I'm going to show you. You know, And he would have taken this group of people and he would have marched in there with a million plus people and just overthrown them. He could have done that. He could have created the frenzy in the people and they could have just ran right over the Romans. But he didn't do that. He didn't go there. He could have even went to Pilate's place and started a military coup there, but he didn't do that either. He went right to the temple, it says, of God. Because that's where he wanted to be. That's where he needed to be. You see, you have to understand... In Christ's thinking, the temple is the issue. Rome is not the issue. And in his followers' thinking, Rome is the issue, not the temple. What are we going to the temple for, Jesus? Come on. And we see throughout the ministry of Christ, really what was going on in a military manner, in a political manner, even in a social manner, economically. It never was an issue with him. It never was. The Messiah did not come initially in his first coming to solve those kind of problems. We have to understand that even today as a church. There's so many churches that they get caught up in politics, they get caught up in this, and they get caught up in picketing and all this other social stuff. And that's not what God has called us to. Not that we shouldn't be active politically or socially. I'm not saying that. But it's not the role of the church. Before Christ could come as king of kings and lord of lords and establish his own kingdom here on earth, which he's going to do, by the way, and when he does do that, all those things are going to be set right by him because he's going to rule and reign. Before that happens, he must first come and be received by men in their own hearts. See, When Christ came the first time, his incarnation, he came as what? He came as the Savior. That was the purpose. He didn't come to overthrow Rome or anybody else. The temple is the issue, not Rome. Our Lord is not concerned 
necessarily with the people's relationship to Rome. He knew the struggle they were going through. I mean, he could have snapped his fingers and delivered them. But that wasn't his concern. He was more concerned not with their relationship to Rome, but with their relationship to God. That's his focus. And that's still his focus today. And when you look through the New Testament, you can see that rather clearly. Think about it. When Christ started his earthly ministry, all the way back, you can turn back to it in John chapter 2 if you want. John chapter 2. You can see, you can read for yourself where he went. He began his ministry at the Passover. And the Jews were celebrating the Passover. And Jesus, it said Jesus went to Jerusalem. And he found in the temple those that what? Sold oxen and sheep and doves and the money changers. And what did he do? It tells us that he made a whip of some small cords and he drove them all out of the temple. The sheep and the oxen and poured over the changers, the money changers' tables. And he said this to them. He says, take these things from here and make not my father's house a house of merchandise. So, when he started his ministry, he started it in the temple. And when he ends his ministry, really he's ending it in the temple. Now, during Christ's earthly life here on earth, 30-some years, I'm sure he saw a lot of injustice going on around him. He saw the oppression by the Romans. He saw those poor people who constantly suffered. But you know what? His mission didn't change. His mission was always concerned with the hearts of people. His whole ministry gives us a very clear perspective on what our ministry should be today. He was concerned with how people worshipped. He was concerned with their relationship to God. He wasn't concerned with their earthly relationship to an earthly kingdom. He didn't really care about that. Matter of fact, he told one of the leaders, he said, My, my kingdom's not of this world, right? Clearly. Three years involved in ministry and his mission, his purpose never changes. He ends up right back in the same place. He starts right back in the temple. Even though he'd seen all these things happen during his lifetime, it didn't get him off track. So many times the church gets off track. And they forget that the only way we can really make an impact on this lost and sinful and dying world, the only way we can do that is to have the right priority. And the right priority is to have a concern between men and God. Because we understand that the Bible says only when men are right with God can they be right with men. You've got to get the vertical right before the horizontal will work out. There's a lot of causes around the world that you could go off and, and you know, make a pretty good point about helping this or helping that or whatever. But you know what? It's not good enough just to give people food. If you're not changing their heart. If God is not changing their heart. It's so important to understand. And Peter kind of picks up on this in 1 Peter 4.17. He says, judgment must begin with the house of God. And that's exactly where Jesus ends up, right back at the temple of God. See, as long as things are wrong with the way people interact with their God, there's going to be things wrong with a nation. I mean, if you want to pray for our nation, don't pray about the next election. Because I know the Word of God says, you know what? He raises up those whom He's going to put in charge. doesn't mean we don't go and we don't vote and, and do our due diligence and understand who the candidates are. I'm not saying that. As a, as a citizen, that's our obligation. It's even a spiritual duty, I think, to, to make sure that we do those things. But don't be so naive to think that someone's going to get elected that God doesn't want in there. The problem with society is that we've gotten away 
We've gotten off on side issues and we've gotten away from the simple fact that, you know what, God is concerned with people's hearts. The measure of any society is the relation it has with God. Worship is the issue. That's why Jesus goes to the temple. He wants to point out to them, you know what, there's something wrong here. There's something wrong with your worship. If you read through Romans 1, worship is always the issue. The problem with society is not politics, it's not economics, it's none of those things. The problem with society today is that simply society has abandoned God. They've turned their back on God. And we should be crying out to God, not to necessarily cleanse the temple, but you know what? Cleanse the church. Because when you look around at churches today, beloved, you see them full, but a lot of times they're not full of things that honor God. What did he find? What did he find when he came into the temple? Remember, he had already cleansed it once, three some years before. What did he find? I mean, why would he even go back? You know, sometimes we just give up on people. Try to help them, try to give them some input or give them some advice or give them some spiritual truth. And maybe they latch on to it, but then they go back to the same old thing. And that happens once or twice, and we just go, ah, whatever. Turn our back on him. Jesus didn't do that. He ends up right back in the same place. And he came because the holiness of God was a factor here. It was important to him, and it should be important to us. When Jesus cleansed the temple, there was no revival. There was no real reform. They went back to the exact same thing they did before. That's why he came back. But that's not pleasing to God, and he's willing to encounter that. To call sin, sin. God always has to speak the truth. He always has to reveal himself as holy. And he will always reveal his hatred against sin. Now, I want you to imagine Jerusalem packed with all these people. All these people just milling around. Masses of them. And Jesus comes into that place. And he comes into the great outer wall where you have the columns and everything and surrounds the, kind of the, the, the whole temple area there. He comes through the main opening and he enters what's called the Court of the Gentiles. And it's called that because anybody could be in there. You could be Jewish, you could be Gentile, whatever. You could be in that area. And as you look in that area, you would see a gate. It's called the Gate Beautiful where the man was begging in Acts 3. And inside that gate, there was what was called the court of women. And that was a place where Jewish women women would come, and even Jewish men, they could be there as well, but, but no Gentiles could enter that place. Matter of fact, at the gate, beautiful, there was actually a sign giving the Jews authority that if a Gentile would enter into that area, they could lose their life. And that was approved by the Roman authorities. It's okay for them to do that. So it was off limits to Gentiles. And so you go into this gate, and you come into another court here. You see the court of the, the women, and they have these receptacles where they give their offerings or whatever on the, the, the walls around. And they'd be gathered there. And then there was another gate, and it was made out of uh, very heavy um, bronze. And history tells us that it, it took 20-some men to open these, these doors. Massive. And when you went through that gate, you came into what was called the court of the Israelites. And men could go in there. And the court of the Israelites was where they would go and they would get ready to do their offerings. So imagine this. You're walking in, and as you're walking in, you're going up levels because you're, you're ultimately going to end up at, at the highest point. And in the court of... Then that would lead into another gate, and you'd have the court of the priests there. And that's where they would do the, the offering and the burnt offering, the incense. And they could look through as they handed the priest their offering. 
And from the court of the priest, there was another little door, and it entered into a 600-square-foot courtyard, at the back of which was called the Holy Place. And it was a small little building, and it included in it the, the Holy Place and the Holy of Holies, where the Ark of the Covenant was and all that. And that was kind of the, the, the highest point there, and it was separated by the veil that we, we hear of. And the high priest could enter there once a year on the Day of Atonement. Well, the interesting thing about the temple was that it always starts out low and it leads up to this, this high point. And so Jesus walks into the outer walls, and he's standing there in the courts of the Gentiles. That's where he's at at this point. And it was known in that, that day, in that society, they had what they called the, the Bazaar of Annas. It was kind of like a giant flea market. That's what happened at that point in that, in that courtyard. And basically, he, Annas was a high priest and he started it. He was a corrupt, he was an evil man, and he started this courts of Annas because he wanted to make some money. And so they started selling things there. He and his priests, they sold certain things. So you would be on your way to give your sacrifice to the priest, and generally they would have an inspection center set up. And you would bring your little lamb or whatever you were going to sacrifice, and you'd have to go through the inspection center. And the inspectors would look at it and say, oh, you know, this isn't good enough, sorry. (laughs) Well, this is all we have. Well, you know what? This isn't good enough. But we'll take this off your hands. Now, we have some for sale over here. (laughs) That's exactly what was going on. Exactly what was going on. And you could come and, and, and sell sheep and lambs and doves and pigeons and they made money exchanges because you had to have the exact right amount for your offering. And if you didn't have the right amount, it wasn't good enough. So a lot of times they didn't have that right amount, so they'd have to do some money exchanging deal. And it was all corrupt. They were ripping the people off left and right. And so Jesus is in this midst of all these, this craziness going on, and he's looking around, and he's seeing all this happen. All these people being extorted, fleeced. And these are poor people, people coming to bring their offering. That's why they had doves or pigeons. Some of the people, they couldn't, couldn't afford a lamb. So God made provision for them, in the, even in the Levitical law because he was concerned about the poor people. And so you have these religious leaders basically taking advantage of everybody through this system of just fleecing the people. And Jesus walks in and his eyes and his ears and everything is just filled up with all this stuff going on. All this basically evil But this is Jesus' turf. This is where he is going to make a statement. This is God's temple. And he says it's been turned into a cave of robbers. And so he comes back once again to the temple and sees the same thing. He came to overthrow the corrupt worship that was going on. He was on a divine mission, not a military mission. Secondly, I want you to see his authority in our text. I mean, it says that he drove out all those who sold and bought in the temple, overturned the temples, uh, the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. I mean, you have to understand, in their culture, I mean... The most powerful thing going on in that country was the temple. It's kind of like Rome and the Pope, Vatican City. Very powerful place. Same thing here, in a similar fashion. I mean, you had the high priest who was a very powerful man. And then you had the man who was next to the high priest who was equally powerful. And then you had the the head of the temple police. They were all powerful. And then you had all these orders of of priests who basically, tons of them. 
There's this organizational structure in place. I mean, to the point where if you walk by the gate beautiful, you could get killed if you were a Gentile. They had plenty of power. They had plenty of authority. Now, if you think that Jesus is just some meek and mild, you know, guy you see on the movies all the time. Look at what he does here. I mean, there was probably thousands of people there selling their wares, ripping people off. And these were greedy people. These were people who were not kind people. They were people who were cheating people. So they had questionable character already. And you look at what he does. It says that he casts out all of them that sold and bought. He drove them out. And he might how did he do it? I don't know. It doesn't tell us. Maybe he had the whip in his back pocket. I don't know. But you're talking one man, beloved, one man against hundreds, if not thousands of people who are making their living ripping off these people. I don't think it was, I don't think he just went up and said, oh, excuse me, you know, you're going to have to leave now. <laughs> I don't think that's the kind of characterization that he had. It said that he drove them out. That's the idea of, of, I mean, it says that he turned over tables. I mean, can you imagine these people, all the little money changers, you know, they have all the little coins lined up on the table. And Jesus is looking at it, picking the table up and just throwing it. And all their coins are going everywhere. you got animals scattered everywhere. I mean, this definitely shows his authority. Even the guy that sold the birds kicked them off the stools, cleared the place. Literally, one man. Mark chapter 11, verse 16 says he wouldn't even allow anybody to carry any vessel through the temple because, see, what, would, what they would do <clears throat> is a certain part of the temple was uh, kind of blocked off, but you could walk through it and get to the other side, and it was kind of like a shortcut. So people were actually using that section of that temple area to kind of cut through, you might say, God's temple. They were disrespecting it. And Mark tells us he wouldn't even allow that. He just put an end to everything. You weren't even allowed to carry anything through there anymore. Now, I don't know about you, but these people were probably a little upset. I mean, they're seeing their livelihood go right out the door. Now, this is the same Jesus that the day before rode into Jerusalem on the, the donkey. Meek, lowly, humble. He came as one who was going to die in humility. But here he gives an incredible demonstration of the reason for which he came. And it's to change men from false worshipers to true worshipers. See, all these people who were gathered there, in their mind, they're thinking, oh yeah, they're part of the worship process. We're in the temple. We're in a holy place. So we're, we're facilitating this whole idea of worship. But it got so far off course when Jesus showed up he was just, he couldn't believe it. And he went right into the temple and cast them out, it says. And you say, well, why, why would they listen to him? He's only one guy, right? I mean, why? you're talking about people who are greedy for money and he's going in there upset in their little business. Why would they just sit back? There's more of them than there is him. You know, even with the disciples, they're still outnumbered. Well, stop and think about it. 
the crowd was hailing him as Messiah. Thousands, if not millions of people. Secondly, most of the people hated this thing that was going on. They hated this bazaar of Annas. The, the idea that they could bring a dove and yet it wouldn't be good enough and they had to give their dove to the priest so that they would be made to buy another one at ten times the price. The people were not in favor of what was going on here. This was a religious leader's deal. So when they saw Jesus doing what he was doing, the people were very much behind him. Interesting historical note, the people themselves started an insurrection even after Jesus' time and put this whole bizarre business of Annas out of business even before the temple was destroyed in 70 AD. So the people were with him on this. But still, he had incredible divine authority here. And for a moment, after he drives, it says he drove them all out. They're all out of there. Nobody's there. You just see all this debris left behind. For a moment, he probably looked around and he thought, you know, at least my father's house now is clean. It's not tidy by any means because it was a mess. But it was clean. In verse 23 A little later down in the text, the chief priest says, What authority gives you the right to do these things? What authority do you have to come in here and do this? They wanted to know. They were so blind. Even after they saw all these wondrous works, they were still blind. You know, we need to be praying that God would clean the church like he cleaned the temple on that day. Because every age has their fair share of money handlers, money changers in the temple. Luther had them. That's what the whole Reformation was born out of all the indulgences that the Roman Catholic Church had. And even today, we have people that are even within the Protestant church, that are hucksters, that are corruptors of the word, who are basically in it just for themselves, for their money. Saw one smiling guy the other day on, I think he was on Sean Hannity's program, a guy from Texas. Got a new book out. Every day can be Friday. Sean Hannity interviewed him probably for three or four minutes. I watched the interview because I recorded it. This is the pastor of one of the largest churches in the United States. I mean, think about it. Think if you were on a program like Sean Hannity, millions and millions and millions of viewers, and you had four minutes, what would you say? Do you think maybe, as a Christian, maybe just a little part of you, would you'd want to kind of Slip the gospel in there somewhere? (laughs) Not once. It's all about the book. All about feeling good about yourself. Every day can be Friday. You don't have to be down and out in your work. On and on and on. You know, and I'm thinking, I mean, at least say something about Christ. Say something about the Lord. Something. Not one thing. There's a third credential here that I want you to see in verse 13. Not only was on a divine mission, a divine, he had a divine authority, but also he had a commitment to Scripture, divine Scripture. Because look at what he says in verse 13. He said to them, It is written, My house shall be called a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. It is written. He's quoting from Isaiah 56, 7. Jesus said over and over and over again, I mean, he was just so committed to God's word. He says, I never do anything that the Father doesn't show me to do. I never do anything on my own accord. I'm in submission to the Father's word, to the Father's will. Everything he ever did was consistent with the word of God. 
And here he wants them to understand that God the Father is displeased, not just Jesus, God the Father is. Because he says, my house shall be called a house of prayer, and you have made it a den or a cave of robbers. What's he talking about here? Well, in the Old Testament, over and over, 1 Kings chapter 8, Jeremiah, Psalm 27, all those places, it talks about the temple being a place where you go to seek God. You go to seek spiritual truth. You go there to seek spiritual union with God. You don't go there to buy a dove at ten times the price. But that's what it was turned into. They turned it into a... It says they're a den of robbers. The idea was, back then they'd travel on the highways, and up in the hillsides there would be caves, and in those caves there would be people who would come down out at night and rob the people on the, that were making their, their passageway to another town or whatever. They would come down, rob them, and then they'd go back up safe in their caves. That was a very well-known fact. I mean, that's what would happen in that day and age. Remember the story of the Good Samaritan, that whole thing. I mean, everything, okay, it, it kind of just gelled. And so he's saying, you know what, you've turned God's temple, the house of God, into a cave for robbers. They don't even have to leave their cave to come down. You're, you're letting them do it right here under your authority. Speaking to the religious leaders of the day. You've made it a den of thieves or a cave of robbers. Now when you stop and think about that, here is the Son of God in the temple of God. It's supposed to be the holy place. And he sees all this stuff going on. And he has to remind them that truth is truth. So he does that. It's commitment to divine Scripture. But also, you see his compassion. Look at what happens after he drives out all those, the money changers and those who are selling things. He overturns the temple, overturns all their stuff. He's there. All this stuff is strewn all over the place. But look at what happens in verse 14. Because we see this divine compassion come out of the Savior. It says, And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. He's still there. He's standing in the midst of all this debris. And all of a sudden, you have blind people kind of making their way through everything. You have lame people. These people always hung around the temple anyway because usually they were, that's how they got their, uh, their, their sustenance every day. They would be begging at the temple. People would feel sorry for them, so maybe they'd throw them a piece of bread or a fish or something. They probably filled the court of the Gentiles out there. And here we see the compassion of Christ. See, he's the perfect balance. At one moment, he's enraged and he's turning over temples or tables and he's, he's just cleaning the temple out of these robbers and thieves. I mean, you think that the blind and the lame would hear what's going on and hey, let's get out of here too. But you know what? They understood the compassion of Christ. See, it's a perfect balance Perfect balance between vengeance and compassion. That's what Christ had. If you want to see the compassion of God in Christ, you always have to look at His healing ministry. That's where you see it. You always see Him as compassionate to those who are abused or those who are lame or those who are blind. I mean, you would think that the religious people would care about these people, right? They didn't. They were always kind of squishing them away. Get away. This is a holy place. This isn't meant for you. Because their, their thought process was, well, you're blind for a reason, pal. You must have sin in your life, or you're lame for a reason. You can't come here and corrupt the holy place of God. So they pushed them. They were always pushing them away. And the difference between Christ, he was the very holy son of God, and yet he embraced these people. I mean, God is a compassionate God, beloved. Remember when the disciples of John the Baptist, he was in prison. Remember when they came to Jesus and they said, John the Baptist wants to know, are you the Messiah? 
Remember, we looked at that in Matthew 11 when we went through. And what's he tell him? He tells him, you know what? Here's what you need to do, guys. You go back and you tell John the Baptist that the blind see and the deaf hear and the lame walk. He'll know who I am. I mean, he had an incredible healing ministry when he was here on earth. Amazing. And it spoke of his compassion. Because the religious leaders weren't cared about, they didn't care about these people. It's kind of like you see Jesus in the book of Revelation, you know, when he's coming back. And I mean, some of that can be pretty intimidating. It's not something you really necessarily might want to read your kids before they go to bed at night. All right? It's not the sweet little Jesus that they've learned about. He's coming back for judgment. Well, stop and ask, are you afraid of that? If you're in Christ, no, you're not. Because you know Christ loves you. See, and that's the difference. These people, even though they were lame and blind, they could tell, hey, what Jesus is doing here is good. He's cleaning out all the crud. And they felt complete freedom to approach him. And he healed them because of his compassion. I mean, true worship is in the name of the Lord meeting the need of someone else. That's greater than sacrifice. That's what the Bible says. Think about it. This was a place where they sacrificed by the millions over and over and over again. But it was totally corrupt. Well, we also see his divine power in verse 14. We see that he healed all of them divinely. I mean, even the chief priests down in verse 15, it says that they saw this wonder, these wonderful things. They saw people receive their sight. They saw people have restored limbs. They saw all that. What's that mean? It means miracles. They literally saw them happen right before their eyes. They understood only God can create eyes. Only God can create legs. Only God can create eardrums. Only God can do that. Powerful testimony that Jesus did here. And it says that they were very displeased. They were displeased. They were indignant. How dare you come into our place? And do these kinds of things. Even though all these blind and crippled people went away totally healed, they didn't care. Because they didn't care about those kind of people. They just cared about their little system. Their little religious pyramid that they had set up there. They weren't concerned with God's truth. Literally, that word means they were full of wrath. They were angry. They didn't care if people got healed. So what? You're upsetting the apple cart here, pal, and you need to get out of here. I mean, this guy came from Galilee. Come on. Give me a break. We're the religious leaders. I mean, you can just hear them. A little later on, they even cried out, we don't want this man to reign over us. We don't care what he can do. So he gives himself his, his divine power. And he shows them who he truly is. And he even accepts divine worship from these kids that were there gathered around the temple. Maybe basically it means little boys in the Greek. So they were probably old enough to come to the Passover. That's why they were there. Maybe they were being trained or something. Who knows? But they were even crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David. These kids were. And the religious leaders were just ticked off at that. They thought, I, you know, even these kids are crying out. That's why he quotes, They're out of the mouth of infants and nursing babes. You have prepared praise. Another place he says, even if 
you don't praise me, the, 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 the what? The rocks will cry out, right? See, God's going to get his due. God's going to get what is his. We don't have to worry about that. And here, even these little boys are worshiping him. And they just get all bent out of shape because they can't believe that he's allowing this to happen. You say, well, how do these kids know this? Were they like divinely inspired to do this if they were just young kids? Well, I mean, kids follow their parents, right? I mean, remember the day before what was happening. Everybody was saying these phrases to Jesus as he came into Jerusalem. And so they see him come into the temple and they're just kind of emulating their parents. I mean, maybe they understood what they were saying. Maybe they didn't. We don't know. We really don't. Remember, most of the crowd turned on Christ. And they were all saying the same thing at one point. So it's, it's just an incredible window that we get to look into, into the, the majesty of Christ as he brings himself across as the Messiah, as the King. He's on his divine mission, showing us his divine authority, his commitment to the word, his compassion, his power, worship. But lastly, we see what, what happens at the end. Follow along with me. After they say, do you hear what these are saying? And Jesus says to them, have you not read out of the mouths of infant nursing babes have prepared praise? And then he says in verse 17, it says there, and leaving them, You don't have to understand Greek to understand what that means. It means he left. He left them. He was rejected by them, by the religious leaders, so it says he left them. He left them, he went back out to the city of Bethany, and he lodged there. He really physically left them. Even the next day in verse 23, they want to know why, what authority do you do this? And in verse 27, he finally gets around to saying, you know what, I'm not going to tell you by what authority I do these things either because they couldn't answer the question that he gave them. He left them. In other words, I'm not going to play this game with you religious leaders anymore. I'm done. It reminds me of Genesis 6 where the Bible says that God's spirit will not always strive with man. Beloved, there comes a day in an age when God leaves. When God leaves. You know, you, you may have heard the message of the gospel over and over and over again and you still have yet to embrace it. Don't presume that God will give you that chance on your deathbed like the man on the the cross, the thief on the cross. Don't presume that at all. Because the one thing I've learned in ministry is that when people are encountered with God's truth, usually one of two things happens. They don't ever stay the same. One of two things happens. Either they are drawn to it, and God supernaturally saves them and changes their life, and they make a wholehearted commitment to Christ, Or they are hardened against it. And there comes a time where the more they hear, the harder they grow. And you have to understand this. We're not, this is not playing games. We're dealing with eternity here. We're dealing with your eternal soul. God came in the form of Jesus Christ so that you could live, that you could have your sins forgiven. You could live out from under the burden of your sin because he took it upon himself. That's what the gospel is. The gospel is you turning from your own means to save yourself. You're turning to God. You're turning to Christ. You're turning to the cross because you understand that that's what he did for you.
if you had a mortgage bill that was upside down and you couldn't pay it, and somebody came to you and said, hey, you know what, I'll pay it for you. I'll take care of it. What kind of fool would you be if you said, no, I'll work it out. Don't worry about it. I'm not going to take your money. I'm not going to do it. The only reason I could imagine somebody would reject an offer like that when there's no way you could help yourself, one word, and that's pride. Pride. And when we're talking about eternity, give it up. It's not worth it. It's not worth it. God is crying, he's begging, he's pleading with you. Don't try to do this your own way. It's not going to work. I've provided a way. It's free. All you have to do is embrace it. Turn from yourself and turn to me. I'll save you. I'll forgive your sins. I'll, I'll, I'll make you the kind of person that I intended you to be originally. And more than that, you'll enjoy it. God never drags anybody by the feet screaming into heaven, beloved. It just doesn't happen that way. So I pray that this morning, as we've seen Jesus clean this temple, that maybe you'll turn to God realizing that your own heart, which the Bible says, by the way, all of our hearts are evil and desperately wicked, We can't even know them ourselves. We we can't even understand our own hearts. But God does, and God's provided a way of restoration. Let's close in a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for your word. It may be that in your life, Christ has revealed himself to you somehow, maybe through a message, maybe through another person. I just want to share with you this morning that it's based upon the divine authority of God's Word. Christ has clearly demonstrated His power, His compassion. If you've seen these things, what's your verdict? Are you going to be like the little children who really in their simplicity take into their hearts what they saw, what they experienced, and cried out, Hosanna, save now, O son of David. That was proof enough for them. They didn't need to see anything more. Or are you going to be the hard-hearted religious leader who in the shadow of Jesus' miraculous works only gets angry Because who is he to make such a claim on your life? Who is he to call you to accountability? Who is he to confront your sin? See, it's either one or the other. Either you're going to get angry or you're going to embrace the Savior. There's no middle ground. He that is not with me is against me. He that gathers is not together scatters abroad. That's the words of Christ. You either embrace the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior or you refuse Him. But you can't just stand idly by and do nothing. I pray that you would open your heart this morning to Him, even now. The one who came to die for you, the one who rose again and secured your salvation through his work on the cross. Father, we thank you for your word. We ask that you would work in each heart. Lord, if there's any here who have yet to put their faith, their trust in you, I pray that you would cause them to cry out to you, be merciful to me, a sinner. Lord, save me. I know that's a prayer that you will answer when it comes from a sincere heart. Lord, we pray for us as believers that we would be on alert, that we would have our truth ears active so when we hear 
falsehood, or we see it taught, or we encounter it in any way that we will be able to say, no, 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 it is written in God's word and proclaim the truth to a lost and dying world. We pray this for your glory, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.